And it is my privilege to meditate on God's Word with you in Proverbs chapter 5. So I invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 5 in your Bibles. You need to see it with your own eyes. Well, Proverbs 5 is a warning against adultery. Now, many of us in the room here today are thinking that since adultery is something that we would never dream of doing, that this is, this is kind of an easy message for us, and maybe we'll get a little nap this morning as, as we uh, go through this. But uh, in fact, uh, the reason we might think that is because studies have shown that almost nine out of every ten Americans understand that adultery is morally wrong, that it is a serious moral failure. And in fact, in, in almost every culture in history, Adultery has been either a crime or, uh, and or something that leads to social condemnation. This was certainly true in ancient Israel because according to God's law, adulterers, whether male or female, uh, are punished by death. They are stoned to death. And so this is something that God obviously takes very seriously. And so as we meditate today on Proverbs, though, seems like we're all on the same page with it. Nine out of ten Americans understand that this is wrong. And so maybe we can just read this passage and say, well, well said, Solomon. That's, that is very good. And then we can just go home. But here's the thing. In America, the same people who are surveyed about whether adultery is right or wrong, and nine out of ten of them understand that it is, in America, depending on the research you look at, about one-third to one-half of men have committed adultery. One half, one third to one half, say three to five out of every ten. About one in four women have committed adultery. And so this means that an awful lot of people are doing what they know to be wrong. While we hope that these numbers don't reflect what is true within the church, we would probably be very shocked to know the reality. For instance, in the uh, Washington, D.C. area, uh, we live in an, in an area that is a major hub for the selling of people, including children, for the sake of satisfying sinful desires. This is what we call uh, modern-day slavery, you know, what we call sex trafficking. Studies show that, and by the way, this is a billions and billions of dollar a year industry if you can bear to even call it that. Studies show that the average customer of a sex trafficking, the average customer is a married white male, married, let that sink in, 35 years old or so, the average customer. He's a father and he also goes to church. That's the average customer. And in fact, just this week, police in Ohio arrested not only an emergency room doctor who is paying for this, but also a former youth pastor. So facts like these tell us that the impact of sexual sin in our world is a whole lot greater than we care to imagine or admit. But I bet you that everybody here today knows somebody who has been affected somehow by adultery. Some of us here today are even victims of adultery. And some of us here today are adulterers. 
God designed us as sexual human beings. Let's get this straight in our minds. Sexuality is a good thing. Physical intimacy is a good thing in the context of a godly marriage. Uh, another one of Solomon's books in the Bible, the Song of Songs, uh, Song of Songs uh, this affirms uh, this idea that intimacy is a good thing. But God is very clear throughout his word that the beauty of that gift is only to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And yet we know as we look around that this gift is constantly perverted as people do what they know and admit is wrong. Now this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Solomon was the author of Proverbs as well, and he was the product of adultery himself. His father, King David, sinned with Bathsheba, and he even committed murder to try to hide his sin. Solomon also couldn't control his desire for women. Not only was he a polygamist, but he did what godly expressly forbade him to do, and he married foreign women who seduced Solomon to worship their God. And so because of Solomon's sin and because of his dad's sin, uh, God splits the kingdom of Israel in two and hundreds of years of strife and conflict follow. It affects a lot of people. And all of this is very much a result of Solomon's lack of self-control. Well, in the Bible, marriage and adultery are pictures of faithfulness and unfaithfulness to God. The Bible often speaks of our relationship to God using the language of marriage. We're probably all familiar with the beautiful verse uh, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. I saw the holy city. This is John's uh, uh, vision. I saw the the, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God from God prepared as a bride adorned adorned for her husband. And so then Paul uses marriage to describe our union with Christ in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. The the passage is much longer than this. But verses 31 and and 2 say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is God himself describing the beautiful physical union between a man and a woman who are husband and wife. And then in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so with this in mind, it makes a great deal of sense then that the Bible so often uses the language of adultery when he's describing the unfaithfulness of his people when he's describing uh, his own people's sin, whether it's sexual or otherwise. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, I got to tell you, he doesn't pull any punches at all. This is what God says as he expresses his righteous anger against his people when they choose to bow down to idols instead of to him. In Jeremiah 5, verses 7 and 8, God says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. That is, they've bowed down to idols. When I fed them to the full, in other words, when I gave them everything that they could possibly need and everything that I give is good and wonderful and holy and pure. And and so when I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. 
In other words, they rejected all of those good things that I gave them and bowed down to idols which aren't even gods. They don't even exist. And they chose, they chose evil instead of God's righteousness. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. They were anxious and determined not to worship the living God, but to worship vapor. And so even when ours is not sexual sin, God compares our sin to adultery. And we commit adultery against God whenever we reject him. You see, he has fed us to the full with Christ, but sometimes we violate the sacred covenant that he has made with us through his blood. And if we go on sinning, if this sin becomes the pattern of our lives, as Hebrews says, we crucify Christ over and over and over and over again. And so God says through Ezekiel in chapter 23, verse 37, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. One horrible sin begets another horrible sin. And so you see Proverbs chapter 5 is very, a very important chapter for every single one of us in this room. This is a warning that comes on the heels of the exhortation last week in chapter 4 to diligently guard our whole being with godly wisdom. And this is a wisdom that comes when we trust God, understanding that, that all that he expects of us, all that he requires of us is good for us in the, in the most profound sort of way. And the root of godly wisdom, of course, is our reverent fear and awe of God. And so out of that reverent fear and awe of God, wisdom calls us to be faithful to God. Be faithful. This is the extremely important lesson of chapter 5 to all of us, whether we're young or old, uh, whether we're the victim of adultery or the perpetrator. Be faithful. Be faithful not only to your spouse but to God. Be faithful to God whether you're married or not. Be faithful because you belong to Christ and he's been faithful to you. And so as we look at this, we see that chapter 5 is laid out like this. Verses 1 through 6, we see wormwood and not honey. You see, as enticing as adultery and related sins might be, they lead to death. There's only one destination. Verses 7 through 14, we see sin's regrets. This is an accounting of the ruin that adultery causes. Verses 15 through 19, we see, we see real delight as Solomon describes the real joy of marriage and even the celebration that occurs when we are physically intimate with each other in a godly marriage. And then in verses 20 through 23, we see the snare of adultery, and we are reminded that adultery is nothing but a fatal trap. And so I'm going to read chapter 5 of Proverbs for us, and there's some explicit language in here. So let's be thankful that our God is not afraid to talk about hard things. Let's be thankful that our God has given us the gift of marriage in which we can celebrate a physical union in a good and godly way. And let's be thankful 
that he is willing to tell us about our sin. Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep in discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my my instructions. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are pure before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. May God add his blessing, as always, to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. And so as we dig into his word, let's remember first what God is telling us here. God's not just telling us what not to do, but what to do, whether it be in the area of intimacy or in any other area of our walk with Christ. What he's telling us to do is to be faithful, be faithful. And so as we begin, it would be helpful for us to define a couple of terms that have to do with unfaithfulness so that we can be clear. First, adultery is intimacy where at least one person involved is married to somebody else. But you know what? We can also commit adultery in our hearts, just as Jesus declares in Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so just as an aside, that means if you are involved in pornography... If pornography is an issue with you, every time you participate in that, you're committing adultery in the guise of God. And so this is something that we've all got to take very seriously. We need to get help if we need it. There is grace for you as you repent. Secondly, even as chapter 5 is a warning against adultery, we need to understand that fornication is a sin too. 
Fornication is intimacy maybe before marriage, but it is, it is intimacy outside of marriage completely. This covers the gamut. This is the sexual immorality uh, that Paul lists in that very convicting passage that Peter read for us a few minutes ago in 1 Corinthians 6. You see, God is offended by both adultery and fornication because both violate his design for marriage and the family. Intimacy is the way that the two, uh, the man and the woman, become one flesh as as God declares himself in Genesis chapter 1. This is the consummation of a godly marriage. But as we think about marriage and the way God sees it, what we're really talking about here within marriage is holiness. This is a purity in the sense not of some kind of austere and legalistic enforcement of a code of morals beating you over the head with a stick. But, but rather, this is in the, in the sense of a cheerful and genuine desire to experience all of the delight and joy of God's gifts to us. A desire... To experience those things because we love God and because we remember that everything that he expects of us, everything that he requires of us is good for us. And so what that means is that when God forbids, it's good for us. And when God gives, I tell you what, it's absolutely awesome. It's awesome. And so in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, Solomon appeals to his son to listen to his wisdom. This is, this is an urgent call. He's not just sitting down saying, hey, let's have a cup of coffee here. No, this is an urgent call. He, Solomon is saying to his son, your life depends on whether you grasp what I'm saying to you and whether you live according to this wisdom. This isn't just advice. This is about your integrity as a human being. This is about your walk with God. And this is about what can keep you from a terrible and grave danger and all of the pain involves. And so verses 3 and 4 describe the danger. Solomon warns his son that a forbidden woman may seem sweet like honey. And boy, she's got some smooth talk to convince you into sin, to entice you, in the words of chapter 1 of Proverbs. Her speech is smooth as oil, but in reality, the sin she's enticing you with is bitter and it's sharp. The forbidden woman, and you can turn this around and say the forbidden man too. This isn't uh, just putting everything on the woman here. But the forbidden woman uh, or the forbidden man is forbidden because this person is not the one that you made a covenant promise to before God. You see, marriage is a whole lot more than just a piece of paper that legalizes your relationship in the state of Virginia into the IRS. Marriage is your commitment to your spouse to be faithful. It is a commitment that you make in the presence of God. And this is why uh, taking your vows in front of a congregation of God's people is so very important. The promise that you make to have and to hold from this day forward and forsaking all others is a permanent promise in this life. And you're making that promise not just to him or to her, but you're making it to God himself. Now, God's covenant with us is very similar. In fact, it's eternal. 
In Genesis 17, God is speaking to Abraham and he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. In other words, I am your God and you are my people and there's nothing that's going to change that. And you know what else? I'm never going to renege on my promise. Never, ever. And God has proven to be faithful to that promise, hasn't he? Jesus, likewise, also blesses the cup during the first Lord's Supper in the upper room. And he declares in Luke chapter 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the new covenant means that Christ promises eternal life through faith in him. And this is a promise that he's going to keep when he returns for his bride, the church. That's what that verse in Revelation is all about. And so marriage between a man and a woman is a sign of that covenant. It's a picture of that covenant, of that inseparable union we have with Jesus Christ. And so back to our passage. When we violate that covenant, we're also doing violence to our Lord himself. And we're crucifying him and crucifying him and crucifying him. And so this is why in verse 4 of our passage In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. She promises you honey, but delivers wormwood. Well, wormwood is a plant that grows in the Middle East that is very bitter. You would never want to eat it. It's absolutely disgusting. And so the picture here is kind of like finding a shiny apple that looks so sweet and good, but then you take a bite out of it and you discover by the taste that it's rotten to the core. And the forbidden woman is also sharp as a two-edged sword, as would be a forbidden man. You see, adultery hurts you. It does damage to your soul, and it also does damage to other people. Just ask anybody who is the victim of adultery, a spouse who has been cheated on. Just ask them. You know, what a contrast there is between the sword of God's word that we read about in Hebrews chapter 4, which cuts away sin in order to give us life. And, And then there's this sword here of the adulterer that just destroys us. It destroys us, entices us away from God. It entices us, in fact, to death. Verse 5 says, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. This is the place of the dead. And so what appeared to be so good turns out to be deadly. You know, I think more than a few of us have hiked the White Oak Canyon Trail in Shenandoah National Park. Have you been there? It's a beautiful place. There's this series of of wonderful and beautiful waterfalls there that flows uh, through virgin hemlock forests. Well, if you've been there, you've also noticed that there are fences and signs there, warning signs, urging you to stay away from the the top of the falls and the cliffs. And those are there because of really awful, terrible experience, because people people have died. They died when they thought it would be great fun to play at the, the top of the falls or at the edge of the cliffs, and they've fallen off. 
And so likewise, sexual immorality may look fun, but Solomon's warning here stands as a great warning between us and sexual sin, just like those signs in White Oak Canyon. And you know what the sad truth is in White Oak Canyon? Is that people still ignore those signs. They go around and they go around the fences and they get hurt and they even die. You see, the fun that they had at the top of those falls certainly wasn't worth the price they paid, was it? And the same is true with sexual sin. It is always true. It is a universal truth. It is never, ever worth it. It always leads to the same place. Adultery falsely promises fun. It promises that the person who isn't my wife or my husband is going to fulfill me somehow or answer some need in me better than my spouse and better in the way that God has chosen to answer your need. And so that makes us willing even to destroy our spouse, to destroy our family for the sake of our desires. This is the epitome of self-worship. And this is the path of death that Solomon is warning us about. It's a spiritual death where we're no longer in fellowship with God. In fact, maybe we've never had it before. This isn't a matter of losing our salvation. Jesus said, no one will snatch them out of my hand, right? The question is, were you ever in his hand? Because adultery is idolatry. And we replace God with our own sinful desires. Without true repentance, without a genuine recognition of that sin, and a genuine turning away from it toward God, what we experience is the bleakest desolation in the universe. We are without God. God has turned his back on us. Talk about wormwood. Talk about bitterness. This is exactly why King David pleads to God as he repents in Psalm 51, verse 12, of his sin with Bathsheba, of his adulterous affair with her. And he pleads with God and he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, David is understanding that he needs to be restored. That his relationship to God has been broken by his sin. He understands that there is no joy without God. There is no joy without his salvation. And he also understands that the only way that God will restore that joy is when he humbly bows and confesses his sin through true repentance. Not just feeling sorry for his sin but actually turning away from it and turning toward God and seeking after God with all of his heart. Well, adultery has another terrible consequence, and that is regret. And this is what verses 7 through 14 shows us, sins, regrets. This is an accounting of the ruin that adultery causes. In verses 7 and 8, Solomon warns his son to embrace his teaching, not even to go near the forbidden woman. She is like the cliffs in in White Oak Canyon. She's like the cliffs that promise a thrill but deliver death. Going near her in verse 9 risks your honor, that is your reputation, opens you up to be at the mercy of unscrupulous people. You know, we've all heard of people being blackmailed because of their adulterous affairs is a reason it works 
Verse 10 is a poetic way of saying that adultery will cost you everything. It'll cost you your marriage, your relationship with your wife. And it will certainly be a barrier to your relationship with God. So you stand to lose everything. Power, years of your life, wealth, the fruit of hard-earned labor, your reputation. And so don't go near the forbidden woman in verse 10. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And then in verse 11, furthermore, you will get to the end. The end of your life or the end of the affair, whatever the case may be, you will get to the end. And what will the end be like? Well, if you have any conscience at all, you're going to regret the way that you've lived. And you're going to realize your sin perhaps too late. Verse 11 says, at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And then in verse 12 and following, your regret just sinks in deeply. Verse 12 says, and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. These are the words of regret. These are the words of regret when you realize that you did not listen to the wisdom that was given so freely to you and so abundantly and it was offered to you, but you hated it instead. And so you're on the edge of ruin if you're not ruined already. And you realize that even though you were fed in full with God's goodness, you rejected it because you thought there was something better than what God had for you. You thought that there was a, a, a promise to be fulfilled that was better than any promise that God could give you. You thought that there was a better way to live your life than the way God would have you live. And when you realize this, you are left with a sorrowful and empty heart that is simply an echo chamber for your painful cry of regret. And that regret will come not only because you have offended God, but as you realize that you, what you've missed out on. And what you've missed out on is substantial. And that is, as verses 15 through 19 tell us, real delight. Real, genuine, godly delight. Solomon here describes the joy of a godly marriage. And even the joy of celebrating physical intimacy within a godly marriage. In verse 15, Solomon now urges his son to drink from his own cistern. That is to be satisfied with his own wife. (laughs) This is the provision of God, your beautiful wife, you see. And water here is a metaphor not for reproductive power, but for the pleasures of godly intimacy. And so in verse 16, Solomon asks, Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? In other words, why would you allow your pleasure to become polluted and diluted with sinful relationships when there is something that is far and away superior to that? And not only superior, but almost beyond description, it's so good. These analogies to water imply a beautiful thing. Imply that a a husband and wife in a godly marriage actually fill and refresh each other, one like a flowing stream and the other like a peaceful well. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But it gets ugly when people cross over the bounds of fidelity 
is so ugly that the water becomes filthy. It becomes like a mud puddle that is filled with the filth of a busy street. I've been to New York City and seen some puddles like that. That's what your relationship becomes when you break it. And so in verse 17, let them be for yourself alone. That is, let your pleasures be for you and your wife alone and not strangers with you. The pleasures of marriage, you see, can only be enjoyed in marriage, according to God. We may think otherwise, but once we've experienced the joy of marriage and the pleasures of marriage in a godly context, there is absolutely no comparison. Verses 18 and 19 declare what real marital delight is like. Verses 18 and 19 say, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Verse 19 goes on, but we'll pause here for a second to remind ourselves that there is a responsibility on the part of a husband always to see his wife as the woman he married. This is never supposed to go away. This is what those vows that you took were all about, to have and to hold in sickness and in health from this day forward. You as a husband ought to see your wife for that beautiful woman you fell in love with no matter how long you've been married and no matter how difficult things have gotten. And you see, this takes hard work. We all know that over the years, things happen. It's easy to drift apart from each other. It's easy to forget your wedding day. To rejoice in the wife of your youth after years of marriage and even difficulty is the mindset that we as husbands, in particular, are called to have. And we know this because husbands are called in Ephesians 5 to love our wives as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love his church? How does he do it? The passage tells us he loves us by dying for us and by giving himself up for us. And so, brothers, we husbands have to be very determined that this is how we're going to love our wives. And if you are young and you're not married yet and you hope to be someday, as a husband, this is what you are called to do as well, to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. And so when we get married, our first step in doing this is to rejoice in the wife of our youth. This is the woman, the beautiful woman we married. This is a decision we make. This doesn't depend on circumstances. It doesn't even depend on her. This is a decision you make as a husband to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. And so as we learn to see our wives in this way, I got to tell you, this is when the godly sparks begin to fly. And this is because it's in the context of a marriage that models our union with Christ that your relationship to your wife thrives. When you love and serve your wife in the same way that Christ has loved and and served his bride, the church, and I got to say here, I don't think there's a wife here who doesn't desire that, that you would love her and serve her in the same way that Christ loves and serves his bride, the church. When you are loving her in that way, and if she's genuine in her love for the Lord, you know what can happen? You can both enjoy the intimacy that God has in store for you. No matter how old you've gotten, no matter how much your bodies have changed, 
you can still enjoy one another because of your love for the Lord. And that love for the Lord causes you as a husband to love your wife in a servant kind of way. And in return, your wife is going to love you because of the way you're loving her. And so verse 19 says, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. <clears throat> you see, this is, this is real delight. This is a physical delight in our wives that both your wife and you can enjoy. And this is a delight that, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a delight that comes when we devote ourselves to God in our marriages. But this takes intention. This takes hard work. And as husbands, it takes hard work to be the servants of our wives as Christ is the servant of his bride. And so what a terrible thing when marriage is sullied and stained by adultery. And you end up having the regret that Solomon has warned you about in the verses above. And so this is why Solomon warns us again of the danger of adultery in the closing verses. Of the spiritual despair that adultery causes. And we can add fornication to this too. Verses 20 through 23 uh, tell us of the snare of adultery and how adultery is nothing but a fatal trap. Verse 20 says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? In other words, adultery makes absolutely no sense at all in the eyes of God. There is no circumstance that can justify infidelity. Godly, righteous marriage makes a promise it can keep, and that is a, a real delight through a right relationship with your husband and your wife. Adultery, on the other hand, is an absolute, complete lie, and it delivers death. It is as dangerous as those cliffs in White Oak Canyon. And to commit adultery is also a, weak, a weakness of character. Solomon has been telling us over and over in Proverbs to hold on to wisdom, to guard it, to keep it, to embrace it, to pay attention to it, to live it and to love it. And to do so is wise and to reject wisdom is utter foolishness. But to hold on to wisdom takes a strength of character and a resolve that God is right and he's just and he's true. And it takes a resolve to know that what he wants for us is always good. And this is a resolve that is born of God that will compel us to obey him no matter what the cost is to us, no matter what the personal pain might be. Because you see, I think that's what we all experience when we resist temptation. We, as we resist temptation, we're resisting something that we want. It wouldn't be tempting if we didn't want it. And so resisting something we want so badly can cause us pain. Hebrews tells us that Christ resisted temptation perfectly and without sin. That took a great deal of strength and reliance on the Holy Spirit. But I've often wondered if that means that Christ felt pain in resisting temptation. I wonder. But you see, the temptation of sexual sin makes us feel very strongly that way. That, for some of us, is a very difficult thing to resist. And it can even seem as the world is going to come to an end if we don't get to taste that honey. But godly wisdom calls us to godly resolve, which will move us not only to resist sin, but also to despise it at least enough to reject it 
because we love God. We want to honor God, and we, and we, and we love what God wants for us. But without that resolve, we become the man in verses 22 and 23. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. This is the, the age-old trap of idol worship, isn't it? It makes false promises. We believe those promises, and then we repeat the sin over and over again, and we become trapped in our pursuit of pleasure. Because after all, idol worship is always about us, about pleasing me, 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 me. And so in verse 23, the sinner dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, the end of a sinner is always the same sad ending? It's always death. It's always desolation. It's always destruction. That end never changes. It's always true. And that's why this is a matter of life and death. The sinner, you see, always gets what he wants. He gets himself, but no God. And he gets that, according to Solomon, because he's been the epitome of foolish rather than wise. Adultery is the supreme example of foolishness because it throws away the gift of a, of a marriage of godly delight, both physically and spiritually. And it's the epitome of foolishness because it rejects God's design. It rejects God's covenant with us. And so the call is very clear, isn't it? Be faithful. Be faithful. A wise person is faithful to his wife and to his God. And if you're a young person here today uh, hoping to get married someday, you need to be faithful to your future wife. You need to remember that your faithfulness begins now. And so reject the lie that intimacy outside of marriage, whether you're married or not, is good. It is wormwood, brothers and sisters. It's not honey. Adultery invariably, without exception, leads to extreme regret. But intimacy within a godly marriage, this is delight on a turbocharger. It's awesome. It's awesome when your relationship is right with God and with your spouse. And so beware of the snare of adultery. Beware of this fatal trap of violating the marriage covenant. This is the message that Solomon is delivering to us. But what do we do with this sin? What do we do with it? We're surrounded by it. Some of us are victims of adultery. Your spouse or or a parent or a friend is an adulterer, and that's cut you to the core. It hurts deeply. Of course it does. What do you do? Some of us are adulterers, whether in the heart or by deed, and you have been the one to cause the pain. You have been the one to violate your covenant with God. What do you do? Well, let's look again at the passage that Elder Ristow shared with us earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That pretty much means we've got to figure out a way to be righteous, doesn't it? But 
No one is righteous, not even one. Do not be deceived. Don't listen to the lies of the world that try to entice you and convince you with sweet talk and and talk that's smooth as oil. Don't listen to those lies that tell you that what you know to be sin is actually a good thing. Because it's not. That's a lie. And so do not be deceived. Neither, Neither the sexually immoral Okay, this is the first sin he lists. This includes fornication. It includes any kind of sexual behavior that is outside the, the beautiful bonds of marriage. So, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that means a slanderer, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the first thing that we need to realize, brothers and sisters, is that virtually every one of us is named somehow on that list. In some way, almost all of us could be found in at least one of those sins. And so that means we're doomed, right? If we don't have someone to save us. We are in desperate need of salvation because of the the corruption of our own souls. Every sin, you see, is an act of rebellion and violence against God. And then Paul goes on and gives us some really good news. And he starts off with this in verse 11. And such were some of you. He's speaking in the past tense. Something has happened. Something has changed here. And in speaking in the past tense, he's also saying that these sins that he's just listed are completely incompatible as a follower of Christ. They are not the things that that a believer does habitually, day in and day out. These are not the things that a a believer uh, practices in his life. And so he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Here's the change. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is tremendously good news. So in other words, God made a covenant with you. It's a covenant that he's never going to break if you belong to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, he demonstrated his grace to you in the bloody crucifixion of our Lord. And so through faith in Christ, his blood makes us clean. And his righteousness is counted as holiness for us as we stand before the living and holy God. And so what this means if we are victims of adultery is that on the one hand, we've got to never compromise the truth. And the truth is that adultery is heinous in God's eyes, just as so many other sins are. We never never yield on that point. Yet at the same time, we've got to realize that our sin is heinous to him too. And yet he showed and continues to show his grace toward us in his son without ever excusing our sin for a single moment. You see, the same grace that he's given us is also available to the one who has hurt you if you are a victim of adultery. Now we've got to remember to be very careful 
We've got to be careful to remember that reacting in sin is not the cure for our pain or for their sin. Grace is, just like it was for us. And so what God is saying to us is be faithful to God as he's been faithful to you. Trust that he is able to heal you. Trust that he is bigger than your pain. Trust that in following him and obeying him and bowing before them, he will heal you as you deal with the very real pain that you're experiencing. And if you need help with that, that's what your pastors and elders are here for. That's what your brothers and sisters are here for in this room to help walk you through that pain. Now what this means for us if we are the adulterers is that we have a very, very clear life and death choice to make. We can turn away from our sin like King David did. We can repent by believing God when he says uh, that the consequence of adultery and of fornication is regret and death. Or you can continue doing what you know God despises even as you know what the consequences are. You can go and play at the edge of the cliff until it kills you. I urge you with every fiber of my being to confess your sin to God right now, today. Begin that process of reconciliation right now. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't get deeper in your sin. Whether it's adultery of the heart or adultery in actual deed. Begin the process of reconciliation now with your Lord. Your pastors and your elders, again, are here for you if you're ready to turn back to God. You know how to get in touch with me. I'm on Facebook. My email address is on the website. My phone number is there. You can do it discreetly, and I'm not going to go tell everybody about it either. You can do the same with Pastor John. You can trust him. We've counseled people before with these issues. You can trust your elders. You can find somebody in this congregation whom you trust, who you know loves the Lord, and they can walk with you through what you're dealing with as well. But you need to confess your sin. You need not just to feel sorry for your sin, but you need to repent. You need to turn away. And so, brother or sister, repent. Repent. This is life or death. And so what this means for every one of us, chapter 5 means for every one of us, whether we're married or single, young or old, it means that we're called to be faithful in every area of our lives so that we don't commit adultery against God so that we don't worship our idols, so that we don't worship ourselves. And so the call is be faithful. Be faithful to God, and if you've got one, be faithful to your spouse. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the fact that your grace is available to us all as we bow in repentance and humility before you. Plead with you to restore to us the joy of our salvation. And, oh, Father, I pray that, that as you work in, in hearts today that are being convicted, I pray that you would minister to your people. 
I pray that you would draw us all nearer to you, that you would cause us to love you more, that you would cause us to be faithful to you in area of our lives, because you, through our Lord Jesus Christ, have been faithful to us. Amen and amen.